while the U.S. Constitution assigns explicit roles in the Supreme Court appointment process only to the President and the Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee throughout much of its nation's history has also played an important intermediary role. From 1816, when the Judiciary Committee was created, until 1868, more than two-thirds of the nominations to the Supreme Court were referred to the committee in each case by motion. In 1868, the Senate determined, as a general rule, that all nominations should automatically be referred to appropriate standing committee. Since then, all but seven Supreme Court nominations, with the most recent being in 1941, have been referred to the Judiciary Committee. Since the late 1960, the Judiciary Committee's consideration of a Supreme Court nominee almost always has consisted of three distinct Stages 1. A pre-hearing investigative stage followed by 2. Public hearings and concluding with 3. A committee decision on what recommendation to make to the full Senate. Upon the President's announcement of a nominee, the Judiciary Committee typically initiates an int intensive investigation into the nominee's background. One primary source of information is a committee questionnaire to which the nominee responds in writing. The questionnaire asks the nominee for detailed biographical and financial disclosure information with responses to some questions requiring their retrieval, listing and summarizing of voluminous of information about the nominee's past experiences or activities. The questionnaire also asks the nominee about the selection process that he or she experienced prior to being nominated by a president, including the circumstances which led to the nominee's nomination, and any interviews with administration officials and others that he or she had prior to being selected. Because of the labor-intensive nature of the task, an administration typically will aid the nominee in preparing and transmitting the questionnaire to the Judiciary Committee. A, a chief purpose of the questionnaire is to provide members of the Judiciary Committee and their staffs with detailed pre-hearing information about the nominee. After delivery of the complete questionnaire to the committee, however, some members may formally request in writing that the nominee provide additional information to clarify or expand on what he or she has already submitted. The nominee may then provide the committee with the written Responses to specific questions from the Senator, which in turn are made available as supplements to the questionnaire to all committee members prior to the start of the nominee's confirmation hearings. The Judiciary Committee Confidential Background Investigation of a Supreme Court nominee closely reviews, among other things, the nominee's past professional activities. In this review, committee members and staff examine the mission of entities that employed or otherwise retained the services of the nominee and the nature and quality of the work product of the nominee while in the service. To this end, the committee might seek and attain access to the nominee's confidential written work product or to other documents that past employer might consider of internal nature and ordinary not um, suitable for public release. If the nominee's background includes prior service in the federal executive branch, the Judiciary Committee as a whole, or some its members can be expected to seek access to records of the nominee's written work product from that service.
Sometimes, however, a president might resist such requests, citing the need to protect the confidentiality of advice provided or decisions made by the nominee while having served within an administration, typically invoking a executive privilege or attorney-client privilege to support his refusal to make such information available to the Judiciary Committee. In such an event, the committee members or their staff might then devote a significant amount of time prior to confirmation hearings to identifying and justifying disclosure or specific kinds of documents that would aid the committee in making a more informed evaluation of the nominee as well as to examining whatever documents are eventually released. In some cases, the committee may be in a position to exert leverage over an administration, particularly when a majority of the committee's members are insistent that at least some executive branch documents be released before the committee will act on the nomination. As such, there was the case in 1986 when the Judiciary Committee prepared to consider the nomination of William H. Rehnquist to be the Chief Justice. During the confirmation proceeding for the elevation of uh, Justice Rehnquist to be Chief Justice, the Judiciary Committee sought documents that he had authored on controversial subjects when he headed the DOJ Office of Legal Counsel. President Reagan asserted executive privilege, claiming that he, the need to protect the candor and confidentiality of legal advice summoned to the president and their assistants. But in the opponents of reference in the Judiciary Committee gearing up to issue a subpoena, the nomination of not only Rehnquist, but that of Anthony Omskilia to be an associate justice whose nomination were to be voted on in tandem were in jeopardy. President Reagan agreed to allow the committee access to a smaller number of documents and Rehnquist and Omskilia were ultimately confirmed. In addition to the committee's own investigation of the nominee, confidential FBI reports on the nominee are another important information source. These are available only to committee members and a small number of designated staff under strict security procedures designed to prevent unauthorized disclosure. During the pre-hearing stage, the nominee, in, in accordance with long-standing tr tradition, visits Capitol Hill to pay courtesy calls on individual senators in their offices. For senators not on the Judiciary Committee, that may be the only opportunity to converse in person with the nominee before voting on his or her confirmation to the court. Senators may use these meetings to gain firsthand impressions of the nominee and to discuss with the nominee issues that are important to them in the context of the nomination. Also during the pre-hearing stage, the nominee is evaluated by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary, which is publicly committed to providing the Senate the Judiciary Committee with an impartial evaluation of the qualifications of each Supreme Court nominee. A publication of ABA Committee um, stresses that each evaluation focuses strictly on the candidate's professional qualifications, integrity, professional competence, and judicial temperament, and does not take into account his or her philosophy, political affiliation, or ideology. Performance of this evaluation rule 
the committee states is intended to help ensure that the most qualified persons serve on the federal judiciary. At the culmination of its evaluation, the ABA committee votes on whether to rate a nominee well-qualified, qualified, or not qualified. The rating of the ABA committee is reported to each member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as well as the White House, the Department of Justice, and the nominee. Invariably, a nominee's ABA rating receives prominent news coverage when it is sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee. In the past, a unanimously positive rating by the ABA Committee has almost always pressed a favorable report by the Judiciary Committee on the nominee as well. Conversely, a divided vote or less than highest rating by the ABA Committee usually serves to flag issues about the nominee for the Senate Judiciary Committee to examine at its confirmation hearings. And these issues, in turn, have sometimes been cited by senators on the Judiciary Committee who voted against reporting a nomination favorably to the Senate floor. For the most part, from its inception in the late 1940s and continuing through the next three decades, the ABA Committee evaluated Supreme Court nominees as well as nominees to lower court judgeships with bipartisan support in the Senate. In the 1980s and 1990s, however, the committee came under criticism from some senators who questioned its impartiality and the usefulness of its evaluations to the Judiciary Committee. Notwithstanding those criticism and variations in the recognition afforded it by chairs of the Judiciary Committee, the ABA Committee has continued in recent Congresses to appear on a regular basis before the Judiciary Committee under both Republican and Democratic chairs. In keeping with long-standing practice, the ABA Committee chairs was the first public witness to testify at um, Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 2005, 2006, and 2009 to explain the ABA Committee's rating of nominees John G. Roberts, Jr., Samuel A. Alito, Jr., and Sonia Sotomayor, respectfully, at the Alito's hearing, then chair of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Arlen Specter observed that in receiving the testimony of outside witnesses at the um, Supreme Court confirmation hearing, our tradition is to hear first from American Bar Association and their evaluation of the judicial nominee. Most recently, in 2010, in a minor break from its Tradition, the ABA committee chair was not the first public witness to testify at the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Elena Kagan, but testified in a third panel of public witnesses testifying first among those panelists. It is common well before the start of confirmation hearings for public debate to begin on a nominee's qualifications and the meaning of the nomination for the future of the court. Much of this debate is waged by commentators in the news media and increasingly in recent years on internet sites and by advocacy groups that are actually um, support or oppose a nominee. Senators, too, sometimes contribute to, to this debate in the Senate floor statements or other public 
remarks. Moreover, if a nominee is not quickly selected, groups who see their interest to be at stake by a new court appointment can be expected to begin mobilizing members or seeking to affect public or Senate opinion before the president even selects a nominee. Their purpose in doing so might be to influence the president's choice or to galvanize the group's members and political allies in anticipation of whomever the president ultimately chooses to nominate. If the president's choice of a nominee proves to be decisive, the pre-hearing phase will be of concern to both those groups which support the nominee's nomination as well as to those groups which oppose it. During this phase, a political analyst has been noted say both sides will move quickly to try to define the nominee. The uh, analysis published in July 2005, only days after Justice Sander Day O'Connor announced her intention to retire, considered what might happen if President George W. Bush choice to succeed Justice O'Connor immediately polarized the Senate among party lines. In that event, it predicted the following um, scenario prior to the nominee's confirmation hearing. First impressions are lasting impressions. If Republicans can create a positive image of a Bush um, Supreme Court nominee in the public's mind right out of the gate, that could help the nominee withstand later efforts by critics to portray him or her as extremist. Conversely, if Democrats can quickly paint the president's choice as ideologically driven and far out of the mainstream, that could be a death blow. However, even if a nominee is not consensus choice attracting immediate um, support across the political um, spectrum, the pre-hearing stage will not necessarily be marked by sharp polarization in the Senate. Such partisan division, for instance, was absent when President George W. Bush on July 19, 2005, announced his selection of U.S. Appellate Court Judge John G. Roberts Jr. to succeed Justice O'Day Connor, while liberal advocacy groups immediately assailed Roberts for his positions on abortion and other issues, and Republican Senator quickly rallied behind Roberts. Senate Democrats withheld immediate um, criticism of the nominee reportedly out of concern about falling into what the Senate Democratic leader, according to AIDS, considered a Republican trap of condemning a nominee before hearings. Similarly, after President Obama selected Sonia Sotomayor, Republican senators spoke in cautious about measured tones about Sotomayor qualifications and fitness for the court, while Democrats joined the White House in singing her praises. Another news account noted that Senate Republicans responded with restraint to announcement of Sotomayor's nomination, and their largely muted statement stood in sharp contrast to the fractious partisanship that has defined the court battles in, in recent decades. As confirmation hearings approach, Judiciary Committee members and staff closely study the public record and in investigative information compiled on the nominee and the benefit of such research they prepare questions to pose at the hearings. Sometimes committee members indicate in advance either publicly or by communicating directly with the nominee the kind of questions they intend to ask at the hearings. For his or her part, 
The nominee also intensely prepares for hearings, focusing particularly on questions of law policy likely to be raised by committee members. The administration assists the nominee in this effort by providing legal background material and by conducting mock hearing practice sessions for the nominee. At these sessions, also called murder boards because of their grueling demands on the judicial nominee, the nominee is questioned on the full range of legal and constitutional issues that the senators on the Judiciary Committee can be expected to raise at the nominee's confirmation hearing. Supreme Court nominations since 1949 have routinely received public confirmation hearings before either the Senate Judiciary Committee or a Judiciary Subcommittee. In 1955, hearings on the um, Supreme Court nomination of John M. Harlan marked the beginning of a regular practice continuing to the present of court nominees testifying in person before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Additionally, in 1981, Supreme Court confirmation hearings were open to gavel-to-gavel television coverage for the first time when the committee instituted the practice at the confirmation hearings for the nominee Sandra Day O'Connor. A confirmation hearing typically begins with a statement by the chair of the Judiciary Committee, welcoming the nominee and outlining how the hearing will proceed. Other members of the committee follow with opening statements and a panel of presenters introduces the nominee to the committee. It is then the nominee's turn to make an opening statement, after which begins the principal business of the hearing. The questioning of the nominee by the senators serving on the Judiciary Committee typically The chair begins the question followed by the ranking minority member and then the rest of the committee in descending order of seniority alternating between majority and and minority members with a uniform time limit for each senator during each round. When the first round of questioning has been completed, the committee begins a second round, which may be followed by more rounds at the discretion of the committee chair. For members of the Judiciary Committee, questioning of the nominee may be may serve various purposes. As already noted, for senators who are undecided about the nominee, the hearings may shed light on the nominee's fitness and hence on how they should vote. Other senators, as the hearings begin, may already be reasonably certain about voting to confirm the nominee, yet also remain reasonably open to counter evidence and thus use the hearings to pursue a line of questioning designed to probe the validity of this initial favorable predeposition. Still, others, however, may come to the hearings having already decided how they will vote on the nomination, and accordingly use their question of the nominee to try to um, secure or defeat the nomination. A senator may even be initially undecided about whether he or she supports nominee of the president belonging to the same party as the senator, One reason for this is that a senator might question whether a nominee is committed to a particular judicial philosophy or ideology per per perspective, and consequently might view the nominee hearing as an important in determining whether a nominee might be supportive of the senator's preferred philosophy or ideological disposition. For some senators, the hearings may be a vehicle through which to impress certain values or concerns upon a nominee in the hope of influencing how he or she might approach issues later on as a justice. The hearings to some senators also may represent an opportunity to draw the public's attention to certain issues to 
advocate their policy preferences or to associate themselves with concern about certain problems. Senators, it has also been noted, may play multiple roles in any given hearing. In recent decades, most nominees have undergone rigorous questioning in various subject areas. They have been queried as a matter of course about their legal qualifications, private backgrounds, and early actions as public figures. Other questions have focused on social and political issues, the Constitution, particularly court rulings, current constitutional controversies, constitutional values, judicial philosophy, and an approach a nominee might use in deciding issues and cases. Still, other questions may concern past public statements made by a nominee or if the nominee has prior judicial experience, particular rulings handed down by the nominee. To many senators, eliciting testimony from the nominee may be seen as an important way to gain insight into his or her professional qualifications, temperament, and character. Some senators, as well, may hope to glee from the nominee's responses signs of how the nominee, if confirmed to the court, might be expected to rule on issues of particular concern to the senators. For his or her part, however, a nominee might sometimes be reluctant to answer certain questions that are posed at confirmation hearings. A nominee might decline to answer for the fear of appearing to make commitments on issues that later could come before the court. A nominee also might be concerned that the substance of a candidate re responses to certain questions could displease some senators and thus put the nominee's chances for confirmation in jeopardy. For their part, committee members may differ in their assessments of a nominee's stated reasons for refusing to answer certain questions. Some may be um, sympathetic and consider a nominee's refusal to discuss certain matters of no relevance to his or her fitness for appointment or as a, 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 a illustrative of a commendable in, a, inclination not to be pent down on current legal controversies. However, may consider a nominee's view on certain subjects as important in in assessing the nominee's fitness and hence regard uh, uh, unresponsiveness to questions on these subjects as reason to vote against confirmation. Protracted questioning occurring over several days of hearings is likely if the nominee is relatively controversial or is perceived by the committee members to be evasive or insincere in responding to certain questions or if senators perceive certain issues to merit extended discussion. After questioning of, of the nominee has been completed, the committee in the following days of the hearing also hears testimony from public witnesses. As stated earlier, among the first to testify in recent decades has been the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Federal Judiciary, who explains the committee's rating of the nominee other witnesses ordinarily include pro professional colleagues of the nominee or representatives of advocacy groups which support or oppose the nominee. In a practice instituted in 1992, the Judiciary Committee also conducts a closed-door session with 
each court nominee. This session is held to address any questions about the nominee's background that confidential and investigations might have brought to the committee attention. In announcing this per procedure in 1992, the then chair of the committee, Senator Joseph R. Biden Jr., explained that such a hearing would be conducted in all cases, even when there are no major in investigative issues to be resolved so that the holding of such a hearing cannot be taken to demonstrate that the committee has received adverse confidential information about the nomination. The first such closed-door session was held for the um, Supreme Court nominee, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in 1993. Most recently, such sessions were held in 2005, 2006, 2009, 2010, 2017, and 2018 for nominees Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorchus, and Kavanaugh, respectfully. At the Roberts, Alito, and Kagan confirmation hearings, a brief executive session was held after the Judiciary Committee had concluded all of its round of questions for the nominee, but before it received outside witnesses' testimony. At the Sotomayor confirmation hearing, an executive session was held between the Judiciary Committee's first and second rounds of questions for the nominee. Usually within a week of the end of the hearings, the Judiciary Committee meet in open session to determine what recommendation to report to the full Senate. The committee may, one, report the nomination favorably, two, report it negatively, or three, make no recommendation at all on the nomination. A report with a negative recommendation or no recommendation permits a nomination to go forward while alerting the Senate that um, there's a number of committee members have reservations about the nomination. For the 16 nominations reported by the Judiciary Committee since 1971, either the nomination was reported favorably or other than favorably. For nominations reported favorably, the level of um, support among committee members is indicated as follows. Unanimous um, support, almost unanimous um, support, some opposition, and almost party-line opposition, and five, party-line opposition. The number of the 14 nominations reported favorably, six were reported with one unanimous um, support, while another one was reported with nearly unanimous um, support. The most recent nomination to be reported with unanimous um, support by the committee was that of um, Stephen Breyer in 1994. None of the six most recent nominations to the court were reported unanimously or almost unanimously. The Roberts nomination was, was reported with some opposition. Three committee members not belonging to the president's party um, supported the nomination, while Sotomayor and Kagan nomination were reported with almost party-line opposition, one committee member not belonging to the president's party supported the nomination. The nominations of Alito, Gorchus, and Kavanaugh were reported with complete party-line opposition. Only committee members belonging to the president's party voted to report the nomination favorably to the full Senate. If a 
a, a majority of its member opposed confirmation. The committee technically may decide not to report a nomination, which would which would prevent the full Senate from considering it. However, since its creation in 1816, the Judiciary Committee typically practice has been to report even those nominations that were opposed by a, a committee majority, thus allowing the full Senate to make the final decision on whether the nominee should be confirmed. This committee tradition was reaffirmed in June 2001 by the committee, then Chair Senator Patrick Leahy, and its then ranking member, Senator Orrin Hatch. In a June 29, 2001 letter to the Senate colleague, the committee's traditional practice, their letter stated, has been to report Supreme Court nominees to the Senate once the committee has completed its consideration. This has been even true in cases where nominees were opposed by a majority of the judicial committee. We both recognize and have every intention of following the practices and the precedent of the committee and the Senate when considering um, Supreme Court nominees. During the 20th century, the Senate usually, but not always, agreed with the Judiciary Committee recommendation that a um, Supreme Court nominee be confirmed. In other words, a favorable recommendation by the committee has in few instances, each occurring during the period of 1968 to 1970, not been followed by the Senate confirmation of the nomination. In history, unfavorable committee reports or reports without recommendation have been precursors to nominations encountering substantial opposition in the full Senate, although a few of these nominations have eventually been confirmed by narrow margins. In past decades, reporting to the Senate frequently included a printed committee report. The six most recently re reported um, Supreme Court nominations, however, were done so without printed reports. Prepared behind closed doors, after the committee has voted on the nominee, the printed report presented in a single volume, the views of the committee members supporting the nomination, as well as all supplemental minority and additional views submitted by the time of the filing of the report. No Senate committee, however, is obliged to transmit a printed report to the Senate. Instead, the chair of the Judiciary Committee may file a one-page document reporting a nomination to the Senate and recommending whether the nomination should be confirmed. A printed report may be valuable in providing for senators not on the Judiciary Committee a review of all of the reasons that the committee's members cite for voting in favor or against the nominee. A written report, however, might not necessarily always be considered a necessary reference for the Senate as a whole. For instance, in some cases, senators not on the Judiciary Committee might believe they have received adequate information about a nominee from other sources, such as from news media reports or gavel-to-gavel -gavel video coverage of the nominee's confirmation hearings. Further, preparation of a written report would likely mean additional days for a nomination to stay with the committee before it can be reported to the Senate. In some situations, this might be viewed as creating unnecessary delay in the confirmation process, particularly if there is a desire to fill a court vacancy as quickly as possible. 